I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. We have completed Paul's introduction to Romans in the first 17 verses of chapter 1, and now we're moving into the, the meat of the text, the body of the argument, which, according to our organization, is going to be separated into three parts. So the, the core gospel message is in chapter 1, verse 18, to the end of chapter 4. And we're going to call that God justifies by faith, or justification by faith. After that, Paul addresses two uh, issues that arise out of the gospel. And the first issue is in 5 through 8. We're going to call that empowered by grace. And then the second issue is in 9 through 11. We'll call that included through mercy. After finishing the argument section, Paul moves into the application section, which we'll see as a call to worship as a living sacrifice. Interestingly, the, that call to worship as a living sacrifice connects with today's text, because in today's text we're going to see uh, humankind turning their back on God, rejecting true worship of God. And after we get through the whole uh, gospel argument of Paul and begin the practical section, it's a, it's a turning back to true worship with our lives. So there's this enveloping or connection that has to do with worship from the, the beginning charge to the final exhortation. Today we're on lesson four, and this is our first lesson in the first major section of the argument, God justifies by faith. In this section, Paul uses a lot of legal language, the language of a courtroom. What we're going to see is Paul bringing an indictment or a charge against all mankind, and then there's going to be a verdict. It's kind of a surprise verdict, and then we end up with a precedent, which is supporting the verdict. And in the indictment section, we're going to break this into three indictments. We'll start with the indictment against pagan man, then we'll move to the indictment against the moral man, and then we'll move to the indictment against a religious man. Sometimes I forget where I get things. I, I don't know if, if I've come up with the idea or somebody else has come up with the idea, but to give credit where credit's due in this case, I, I'm pretty sure it was back in college on a spring break trip. I heard Josh McDowell teaching on Romans and he used this indictment of the pagan man, the moral man, and the religious man structure, and it stuck with me, and I, I find it very helpful. So today we're looking at the indictment of pagan man in Romans 1, 18 to 32. And there's a major division in this text at, at the end of verse 25, and it's kind of clear because Paul says, Amen. And when you say Amen, it, you're concluding something. So in, in this case, the Amen ends the indictment that Paul is, has made his major point, but then he's going to go on to develop something that he says in the indictment. He says that God has given mankind over to his own desires, and Paul's going to develop that idea of being given over in verses uh, 26 to 32. So I'm going to, I'm going to just read right now verses 18 to 25 and end with the on men, and then we'll read 26 to 32 when we get there. Let's read Romans 1, 18 to 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. 
professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul's claim or charge is that mankind is ungodly and unrighteous, and for that reason God's wrath is being revealed against mankind from heaven. But it's not only that mankind is unrighteous, it's not only wicked behavior, but there's something more here. Paul charges mankind with a suppression of truth. And he goes on in verse 19 to say that that which was known about God is evident to mankind because God made it evident. Paul charges mankind with being culpable or responsible for knowledge about God that we can't just say we didn't know. How could we know there's a God out there? Paul says we're responsible for that knowledge and that we've suppressed it. So our, our first evil or the first move of rebellion against God is to, is to push down truth about God and then to act in whatever way we want to act, which ends up being wicked and ungodly. And notice how that, that idea of wrath revealed connects back to the thesis. Paul had said in the thesis in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. Well, there's something else is being revealed here. Here, the wrath of God is being revealed. And so it's the same kind of language. So we should ask, what's the connection between the righteousness of God and the wrath of God? So what is the connection? Well, they're the same thing. The wrath of God is the righteousness of God. It's a dangerous thing to ask a righteous judge to act righteously. It's even more dangerous to ask a righteous king to act righteously. And in this case, God is both judge. He judges us guilty of breaking the law, but he's also king who's going to execute punishment. And we, we see this in Habakkuk. Habakkuk cried out for justice in Judah, and he got it. He didn't get what he wanted. He got the revelation of the wrath of God on Judah in the form of an invading Babylonian army. The idea that a loving God would not act in wrath makes the Bible pretty nonsensical. It's not possible to read the Bible and not get the fact that God is wrathful, that God holds people accountable for sin. It's it's one of the most clear aspects of the narrative kind of from beginning to end, starting with Adam and Eve. God didn't just ignore their sin. He banished them from the Garden of Eden. And then we follow that up with the flood and with Sodom and Gomorrah and with the Babylonians crushing Judah. You get this narrative that God, however patient, however merciful he is, he will not ignore sin. It would be wrong to connect God's wrath only with the Old Testament. Quite wrong. Jesus refers to the doctrine of hell as much as he does any other doctrine. You can't make sense of the teaching of Jesus if you remove the doctrine of hell. You're just taking one side of the story if you just focus on the love of Christ. And so the, the cross makes no sense. If wrath or punishment for sin is unnecessary, then what in the world is the cross? What did God do to Jesus if it wasn't necessary for a just God to punish sin? If you don't think there's wrath in the New Testament, just ask Ananias and Sapphira, or just check out the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. The Bible's consistent from old to new, the Old Testament highlights the grace of God 
and the justice of God or the wrath of God, just as the New Testament highlights the love of God and the wrath of God. We don't detach one characteristic or attribute of God from the other attributes of God. God is perfect in his knowledge, in his power, in his wisdom, in his holiness, and in his justice. We don't get to pick and choose one attribute. God is not a concept that we make up. God is who he is. We receive him as he is. Paul adds the reason for that wrath to be revealed, and it's not just that men are ungodly. It's that men suppress the truth about God, and that leads to ungodliness. Paul's going to develop these two ideas, the suppression of truth and the wrath of God. He starts in verse 20 with this idea of the truth suppressed. In verse 19, Paul has said that what is known about God is evident to people because God has made it evident. And he goes on to describe that a little more specifically in verse 20. He says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes. So these attributes about God that we, we rightly can't see. So if, if we're going to know about them, God has to make them known. Paul says those invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that men are without excuse. God, the, the master produced a master work called the creation or the universe. And in that universe, he, he imprints himself. And so we're to, we're to look at the universe to conclude that there is a God. Philosophers have taken this assertion by Paul in, in two directions. There's an argument from design, which is that we should see the incredible, incredible complexity and in design in the universe and conclude that there must be a designer. Uh, the second is the argument of origins or the ontological argument. And that argument states that since there is matter, since something exists, and since that's against science, science doesn't produce something out of nothing, we should conclude that there was someone who brought it into being. There's been so much growth in science and understanding of our physical universe since Paul wrote these words that it's fair to ask, does the, does the indictment still stand? Our sense of the immensity of the universe. I mean, scientists number something like four times 10 to the 22 as the number of stars that exist. That's billions and billions and billions that that's how big our universe is. But you can, you can go the reverse direction to how small our universe is. And some scientists would estimate that it's seven times 10 to the 27 atoms in one human body. So that's billions and billions and billions, seven with 27 zeros. That's how many atoms are in your body. So there's this vast complexity and this huge immensity to our universe. In light of that, and in light of our, our understanding of, of scientific processes, does it change the basic argument that since we have something, it must have come from somewhere? That if there was a beginning there must have been a beginner. Matter doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And does it change the argument that design points to a designer? And I, I would say, no, it doesn't. That in, in fact, science is supporting our understanding of the argument of design and our understanding of the argument of origins. Anthony Flew ended the 20th century as the philosopher of the new atheism. He had written a book in 1961 called God and Philosophy, which established an atheistic viewpoint, a response to theism or belief in God. He was a member of the Socratic Club with C.S. Lewis, which is a, is a debate club for theists and atheists. 
Flew seemed to be impressed with the argument that if you if you took a bunch of monkeys and put them in a room with typewriters and given enough time, you know, millions and millions of years, they would eventually produce the works of Shakespeare by randomly banging out keys. And this is, this is what we might refer to for atheists as the god of time. Anything will happen if you give it enough time. But after the turn of the century, and as we began to learn more about DNA and information theory, some enterprising scientists decided to to test out this popular notion that's getting thrown around that monkeys would produce Shakespeare. And apparently the British Royal Society of Science tried it out by actually putting monkeys in a room with typewriters. And what they got was not one word. And that's very interesting that they got none, not one word, since you consider in English that there are at least two words that are only one letter. The monkey produced no words. It was suggested that the math of getting one sonnet for monkeys to randomly bang on typewriters in order to produce one Shakespearean sonnet precisely, the chances of getting that is 10 to the 690th power. And that that number is so massive that there's no way to really understand it. The number of particles in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. So the chance of getting a sonnet is zero. There has not been nearly enough time in the universe, and there never will be, for monkeys to randomly type on a typewriter and produce a Shakespearean sonnet. So given all the time in the universe, a bunch of monkeys are not going to produce one sonnet, then then how do random proteins come together in, in something much more complex than a poem, just into, into a DNA chain by random chance? And yet what we see in the universe around us is a high level of design, a high level of, of information. So you, you take one cell in your body, just the cell at the tip of your finger. That one cell has your DNA, and it's the same DNA in every other cell in your body. And in that DNA is the information necessary for every other cell in your body. So the, the cell in your fingertip has the, the information necessary for the, the cell in the pupil of your eye or in your heart muscle, for the cells of your, your blood and your blood vessels. And all of this information is gathered in such a tiny space. Incredible reality is that each cell somehow knows exactly which information it needs. Well, the cell doesn't know, but it's been designed to work only off of the information that it needs to function. The cells in my finger, they have all the information necessary for my heart to function and exist, but they don't use any of that information. And the amount of information necessary for all of the systems of the human body. It's, it's been compared to the amount of information that's in the Library of Congress. So all the books that are written in the United States and registered in the Library of Congress, it's as if the cell in my finger goes into that library and pulls out the one book about my thumb, and it only uses that information. And it ignores all the rest of the information about my brain and my stomach and my heart. There's amazing complexity in the information that's stored and used for life to work. This information science, when it was really studied and thought through, had an effect on Anthony Flew. And so in 2007, he wrote a book called There Is a God. He is no longer one of the famous atheist suggested by New Atheism. His name has been removed from the website. He did not become a Christian before he died, but he became convinced that there must be a designer. And he wrote this in in that book, There is a God. He wrote, If the theorem won't work for a single sonnet, then of course it's simply absurd to suggest 
that the more elaborate feat of the origin of life could have been achieved by chance. There's a fine-tuning of our universe that suggests somebody designed it. And we can come at this idea that the knowledge of God is evident in the universe rationalistically. We can, we can sit here and make philosophical arguments, but we, we don't really need to. You know, when we think about the immensity of the universe or we, we think about how, how tiny things are inside of us, that might really not move us. It's too big or it's too small to even think about. But you, you get it by standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or, or skiing in the Alps or sitting at the bottom of a hundred year old oak tree and looking up. You, you get this sense of bigness or immensity that there's something more. You feel it on the sea or when you, the waves are crashing, you get a sense of power. You feel it when you're laying on your back in an, in a, and there are no lights around, and you're gazing up at a sky filled with stars. And the smallness, the delicateness, the design, you see it when you look at a baby's hand, or you, you sit and stare at a spider web, or a, a line of ants marching across the concrete, or, or the most delicate flower that's growing out of this ancient moss. There is something in human beings that is attuned to God's creation, so that the creation stirs in us these ideas of of power and design and beauty and wonder that there must be something behind it. And it's that stirring that should move us to seek, to understand rationally, to look for a word from God that will help us to explain this. And it's the, it's the suppression of that truth that's moving in us that Paul is calling us to account for. He says in verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We have in our hearts this eternity in our hearts, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, there's something in us that believes that there must be something more. And it's evident in the creation, but it goes beyond that. There's a sense where we ought to get rightly give thanks to God and to honor him as God. Because it's not only God's eternal power that is evident, but something about his divine nature, his His goodness. And with, with all the sin or suffering or difficulty in the world, I still recognize the fundamental joys of being alive. And I believe in love. I experience beauty. I see things that amaze me. I, I look at my little baby girls who are growing into to beautiful women, and that should move me to give thanks. And, and interestingly, you, you hear this language. There's purposeful language from, from atheists or agnostics or from spiritual people. They want to you know, give thanks to Mother Earth or to the cosmos or thank the universe that this happened. It's still, it's that eternity in us, that sense that there's something more that makes us want to attribute purposefulness, mind, or personhood to something that's inanimate. People just, they can't bring themselves sometimes to say God, to acknowledge God, but they want to speak of the universe as though the universe designs, has purpose, gives meaning. So I think John Lennon was quite wrong. Actually, I don't think it's so easy to imagine that there is no heaven above us. I think it's, I think it's easy to imagine that there's no heaven of the Renaissance kind with naked baby angels on harps uh, sitting on clouds singing for eternity. That's, that's easy to not imagine or to imagine that it doesn't exist. But it's hard for a human being to imagine that there's no meaning, there's no value, there's no purpose, there's no eternity. To accept the, the truly atheistic narrative 
that you die and that's it. And not only you, but that's the truth of the universe, that at some point, the last star, the last light is going to flicker out and energy will have been fully dissipated through the universe. Everything is cold and dead and lifeless. You never hear atheists talking about that narrative. It's a narrative that doesn't fit with the human heart. So we don't, in our suppression of truth, this is quite interesting, we we don't really suppress that which comes from God, the idea of love, the idea of justice, the idea of purpose. We want to hold on to that. We want to suppress that there's anyone to whom we are accountable for those things. Whether we meant it or not, that's the basic impulse that Paul is charging us with, that there's this impulse towards rebellion, towards turning away from God, so that even though they knew they knew God, they did not honor him as God. There's a desire to reject God as, as Lord, um, to reject this relationship of dependence that I I have on him to to reject that the fact that I have any kind of accountability to him or to his morality or to his law. The the famous author Aldous Huxley, who wrote A Brave New World, was a, a famous atheist and a, a morally honest atheist. He wrote, for myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, the liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. So there is this desire to hold on to a meaning in life, love, justice, but also this desire for moral freedom, to be our own lords and masters, to be accountable to none. This turning away from God is described in verses 22 and 23, professing to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So the intention is that the creation would show off the glory of God and we'd look at the creation and we'd wonder and then we'd turn to God and see his glory more fully. But the opposite happened, that mankind looking at the glory of God and rejecting him as Lord turns their back on God and worships the creation. John Piper imagines this passage as similar to a person looking into the bright glory of the sun. When you turn your back to the sun, these long shadows are cast with the form of man, and we see the shadows of the trees or the shadows of the animals, and they stretch out before us. And so mankind has done this. He's turned his, his back on the brightness, the heat, the glory, the holiness of God to gaze at the shadow of creation. And we have knelt and worshipped the Master's work with our own shadow in the very center. The list of creatures that Paul mentions here take us back to Genesis 1 and the creation. So we have the creation of man and the, the animals and the, the birds and the things that crawl. It also reminds us of the long list of idolatries worshipped through human history. The gods of the ancients were greater reflections of themselves, and they were powerful, self-absorbed, lustful, and warlike. I gave some attention earlier in comments to atheists of the last century, like Flew and Huxley, and we, we could consider some of the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris. But I, I don't see atheism as the primary persistent problem for mankind. So, so many so-called atheists are not really atheists. They believe in something more, in something spiritual, in, in purpose, something real that's not material. The belief in no God takes quite a bit of faith. Atheism is not the, the natural state of a human being. It's not even the natural state of a fallen human being. We're created to worship. We are created with souls. Paganism is much closer to our natural state 
and lines up with our fallen heart. There's a new paganism of the West which worships the environment, worships freedom, worships love, worships choice. You know, we call people spiritual, and we praise this idea of being spiritual without really having any kind of uh, theology or, or background or book that bases our spiritualism. So it's a, it's a, an embracement of spiritualism in nature or in song or in or in some sense of morality or some sense of the other. As long as that spiritualism doesn't make us subservient, you know, we don't want lordship. But if it can bring control over life's events, it, if it can give pleasure, purpose, peace, power. That kind of spiritualism we can live with and we're attracted to. That's basic idolatry. So we've, we maybe have a little more subtle idolatry, but it's, it's basically the same thing. We've exchanged the glory of incorruptible God, not for no God, but for corruptible things, lesser things, things that help us believe in more without making us believe too much. Things that promise what our hearts yearn for, even if they can't deliver. We seek satisfaction in relationships, in advancement, in nature, in popularity, in position. We have our idols. God is punishing humanity for rejecting him as creator and attributing his glory to the creation. We've rebelled against the one and true king. So his, his wrathful response is surprising. It's not active wrath like that which fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's when we think of the word wrath, that's more of what we think. But here we have a passive wrath. God doesn't actively do something God simply pulls himself out of the picture. He draws back. So he pulls himself back from people and back from creation. God is no longer our compass. He's no longer our center. He's no longer our source of life, which means the source of life has been removed. There is none. We become our own center. Things revolve around us, and we no longer have a true north. So without God, our desires and our thoughts have become polluted so that our own behavior is our punishment. There are consequences to the way we live without God. And so while we're seeking fulfillment, we're going in the wrong direction. We're, we're embracing the corruptible to give us the incorruptible. And that will never work. So turning our backs on God, we're no longer lifted up towards him to truly become human. Instead, our humanness is lowered down to the corruptible and fallen. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve the things of the created realm the idols of humanity. At this point in the text, Paul gives his amen, but he's not quite done. He wants to develop this idea of being given over. And so in verse 26 and 27, he's going to explain what it means to be given over in our desires. And then in 28 through 32, he's going to describe what it looks like to be given over in our minds. So I'll read the first one. That's in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In developing the idea of being given over to sinful desires, Paul uses here the example of homosexuality, and he's not saying that homosexuality is the worst of all sins, and he certainly doesn't on the other end want to approve of heterosexual immorality which for biblical Christians or Jews would be any sexual practice outside the covenant of marriage. What he's saying is that homosexuality is an example of sinful human desire that shows how far our hearts can be from God's moral vision for mankind. So turning from right worship of God or right vision of God to idolatry has a lasting moral effect. And the very first echo of turning from the glory of God into idolatry came in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and they, they turned away and there's an immediate effect in their hearts and in their minds. So they began to have desires out of line with moral reality. 
And here Paul's using the words, he uses the word natural and unnatural in reference to homosexuality, and that takes us right back to the creation. So that something was created with an intended order. So we were created in a moral state where man desires sexual Im- intimacy with woman, and homosexuality is is unnatural to that original state. And so most obviously homosexuality is unnatural in a biological sense, that a man's body is made to fit into a woman's body. So sex between male and female in that sense is is natural. Also along with the wonderful pleasure that God designed into sex, sex serves a an obvious reproductive function, but that is only natural between male and female. We can also argue that man and woman were created as moral beings in the image of God. So there's a natural goodness to sexuality expressed in marriage between man and woman, and that flows from the character of God's moral nature. So when Paul is, Paul is saying that homosexuality gives us an example of how turning from God and falling into to a state of human sinfulness has an effect on our passions and our desires that move well down the road away from what God re- originally intended for us, and in and in this case, in sexual practice. That homosexuality is morally wrong was clearly understood by Jews and by early Christians, and the clear prohibition came from Moses in the book of Leviticus. The commandment in Leviticus for a man not to engage sexually with another man occurs twice, first in chapter 18 and then in chapter 20, and there's an intentional repetition of laws regarding immoral sexual practice. The first list states the prohibition, what's wrong, this is immoral. The second list then adds the civil punishment, how how should this immoral behavior be punished. And the lists in chapter 18 and 20 create a sandwich around chapter 19, which is the key passage in Leviticus on personal morality. So the foundational idea of chapter 19 is that we serve a holy God, so we ought to strive to be holy even as he is holy. And this this is also the chapter where Jesus quotes the second great commandment when he's, you know, the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second that is like it is you should love your neighbor as yourself. And that's Leviticus 19.18. These three chapters in Leviticus apply to our personal moral behavior, and they are separated off from religious laws about Jewish worship and from civil laws about governing the nation. So these chapters about personal morality. We can make a case in transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant that certain religious and certain civil aspects of the Old Covenant have been changed by the New. They've been fulfilled in Christ, and so they no longer apply in the New Covenant. We cannot make that same claim for moral law. The moral law of the Old Covenant continues in effect into the New Covenant as an expression of God's very nature. This is this is what is right. It's not a religious convention or a civil convention. It's it's moral reality. For example, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with eating shrimp. You know, it only became wrong to eat shrimp because God gave that as a command, uh, part of his civil covenant to set his people off from the people around them. Adultery, on the other hand, comes out of the moral law section. So this is something out of the heart of God that when a man commits and promises in covenant to a woman and engages in sexual intimacy with that woman, then that's to stay in that covenant of marriage. And that's a moral reality. So that's true in the old as it's true in the new. What's our vision for sexual morality? It doesn't change between the old and the new. Three things from the list in Leviticus help us to interpret Paul's comments here and even suggest that Paul had in mind not only the creation, but he had in mind the moral law given by Moses. So first, both Leviticus 18 and 20, while prohibiting moral sexual practices, 
also prohibit certain practices of idolatry. There's a connection in Leviticus between false worship and immoral sexual behavior. And that connection continues into the the prophets, you see it, and we see it here again in Paul, that turning away from God to false worship has an effect on our moral vision, particularly in our understanding of our sexual desires. Second, homosexuality is placed towards the end of each list in Leviticus, and in the the ordering of the list suggests a, a movement further and further away from the good and natural sexual desire that was intended by God when he created man and woman. And then third, so though homosexual practice by degrees may be further away from God's orig- original vision for human sexuality, adultery is on the list, and it carries the same penalty as homosexuality. So in fact, all sex outside of marriage is considered to be grievous sin to God, who created male and female to enjoy monogamous sexual intimacy in the context of a faithful marriage. So we're not setting homosexuality off in its own list as some um, especially perverse sin. Homosexuality is part of a, a list of sin which includes heterosexuality, and there's this continuum of movement away from God's natural moral vision for intimacy between a man and a woman. So for Christians, when we correctly understand the moral vision that comes through in the Mosaic Code, we understand that this applies to us, but in case there's any confusion, Paul restates prohibition to homosexual practice. So obviously there's right here in Romans what we're looking at right now. But again, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, if we want another passage, and interestingly, in in that list of sin, homosexuality is lined up again with idolatry, and also with adultery. So there's heterosexual sin and homosexual sin, and both of them in some sense are paired with idolatry. A turning away from the true vision of God leads to a turning away of our vision for ourselves. We can't accurately see who we are if we don't accurately see God and receive his vision for who we are. So God gave us gender identity in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that is a central aspect of his creation. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. Male and female equally share the intrinsic value of being created in God's image. We are image bearers. God gives us our identity. And the identity of being human includes bearing his image, holding a special position of greater value than than animals, and being given a gender that we're created either male or female. So in turning away from our creator, modern society or modern paganism has lifted freedom above all virtues. And this claim that we have freedom to define who we are, essentially who we are. We give ourselves value. We choose our own gender. What an incredible burden to place on children. You have no identity. You you have to come up with it on your own. And so in this this freedom, what we're creating is confusion. And it's a lie. You don't get to define who you are. And you don't get to define what your value is. There's there there's got to be something objective, or it's all it all depends on the strength of our own mental abilities to convince ourselves of something that may or may not be true. Who am I? If we don't answer that question based on the vision of God, there's no objectiveness to the answer. It's a figment of our own mental games. Who am I is not a question that you get to answer or that you should even have to answer. 
not foundationally. You get to build on the foundation of who you are. You get to make choices and you get to choose your own unique expression. But fundamentally, you are a child of the king. You are an image bearer and you've been created male or female. And unfortunately, fundamentally, you have fallen in that image that you have a twisted image because we have to move on to Genesis chapter three and the original turning away from God. So rather than than judging the creation, the serpent, Adam and Eve were willingly deceived by the serpent, and the most obvious immediate result of their sin was a loss of intimacy. They hid their bodies from each other, and they hid themselves from God. There was an embarrassment, a hiding, and it was followed by a judging and blaming of one another. So there was this immediate twisting of their desires, and their moral vision became polluted, and the effect was spiritual, it was emotional, it was also physical. As God withdrew himself from creation, there became pain in childbirth and pain in the toil of, of working. And so God gave them on to their own desire to define for themselves what is good and evil. The older homosexual message, say, of the last 40, 50 years has been, we were born this way. We have these desires from birth. How can it be wrong? How can you tell us that we're sinful if we have desires that we're born with? Which is an interesting argument. It's a little confusing why Christians get fall for that one, because a, a basic principle of Christianity is that we are twisted in our very desires, that all of us are born with desires we ought not act on. So if, if it is true that you are born with homosexual desire, if that's true, it still doesn't free you to act on those desires. Interestingly, however, the message is changing, becoming increasingly varied and to be politically correct, I think I should call it the LGBTQ message, not the homosexual message, but things are moving so fast, it's, it's just it's hard to keep up with. But the new message seems to be, we choose. Birth does not define me. And it's an overturning of the old message. There, there's no longer this desire to say, I'm born this way. There's this desire to say, I define me, and I can change that definition whenever I want to. That's the voice of modern paganism. It's a new kind of spirituality that embraces a new sexual vision based on personal choice. And it's further and further and further from the true vision that comes when we see through the eyes of God. So as a Christian, I don't think it's critical to decide whether someone can be born with homosexual desire or whether it comes through socialization. I think it could be either. I don't think we have to choose nature or nurture in addressing the idea that homosexual desire is a sinful desire, a twisting away from the the natural moral vision that God gives us in the creation. So I I was born with greed and pride and selfishness. I have confused wiring. I've been given over and there's a fallenness that comes up with that and I'm twisted from birth. That's a basic assertion of Christianity. And, and on top of that, my socialization has, has created other desires or taken me down other roads where I've, I've built on those sinful desires to, and to increase them and get further and further away from God and his moral created order. Homosexuals are being called to turn back to God for identity. Let God tell you who you are. And that, and like for all of us, that includes laying your desires before God and saying, this is what I desire, God. What would you have me do, Lord? How do I rightly worship you with these desires? And God is going to call them not to act on those homosexual desires. And God might remove that desire, and he might not. This is true for all of us. The one who struggles with pornographic desire, coming to Christ, walking with Christ, they might be free of that desire. They might not be freed from that desire. The alcoholic might be freed from desire. He might not be freed. The greedy might be freed from a lust for money. He might not be. The prideful um, might be freed. He might not be. 
God deals with each of his servants individually in this process of becoming who he's created to be. We're being restored into the full image of Jesus Christ. Each each man, each woman has their own set of struggles. So it seems to me that homosexuality is, is an especially heavy struggle for a Christian brother or sister to have to bear. It's, it, it, is a, it is a very difficult road to walk, to be a believer and to have a homosexual desire that you are not able to act on. You can't, you can't let that desire lead you into, into intimacy. And that's, that's hard. There's no two ways about it. And if God doesn't remove the desire, God doesn't remove the desire. Still, we have to name the desire as God sees it. We follow God's moral vision. We don't choose for ourselves. So the person with that desire is an image bearer. That's their identity. That's your value. You bear the image of God. You're valuable to God. God died for you. The desire, the sinful sexual desire that you can't act on, that comes out of your fallen nature. That's also part of who you are. It's not who you'll be forever because God is renewing us into the image of Jesus Christ. But right now, as, as you struggle as a believer, that's part of who you are. The practice of that desire is sin, is an act of sin. And God calls us not to go there. God has given us over to degrading passions, passions far from his natural vision for man and woman to practice sexual intimacy together. And if we, if we go there, then we receive in our own persons the penalty of our error. We see the pollution of the image, and we don't only see it in the effect of our heart's desires, we also see it in how we think about sin, how we rationalize or justify sin. And so rather quickly, I'm going to go through the the last verses in these texts where Paul talks about the fact that we have been given over to a depraved mind. Verses 29 through 31 contain a long list of sinful behaviors that we can easily recognize in our own society. There may be some organization to this list. In the Greek, the first four attributes have the same ending, and in the last five words in the list have the same prefix. So the, the effect doesn't really come out in English. A little bit at the end of my English where it says untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. So there's some literary kind of grouping of the attributes. But the main point of the list is to show the immorality of human society. We see all of these examples in the news every day. We see them in our neighbors. We see it in our friends. We see it in our children. Uh, sometimes we see it in ourselves. And not all of them every day may be in ourselves and not to the worst extent. Extent, But these are undeniably fruits that come out of the human heart. This list strengthens Paul's indictment against pagan man. This is what he was talking about in verse 18 when he said, The wrath of God is being revealed against the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And in the previous verses, the suppression of truth was a denial of the impulse in our hearts to recognize God from the creation. Here's another kind of truth suppression. Paul says in verse 32, Although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's not quite clear who Paul's referring to. Who are those who know the ordinance of God and know it's worthy of death. So Adam and Eve are examples uh, with the earlier references to the creation. From the very beginning, there was knowledge of the, the one command, don't eat this fruit, and that the result is death. And then the Israelites, through, through history, they understood the commands of God, and they understood that ultimately these things either directly lead to death or ultimately lead to death in separation from God. And though maybe not as as clearly as those who have this kind of special revelation, people in general, when they're honest, when they're objective, look at this list of attributes and agree this is wickedness. 
this is bad. These things deserve punishment, especially when somebody acts this way against me and mine. And yet, while trying to affirm some kind of humanistic morality on one side, we still justify our behavior on the other side. So I'm reminded currently in the news by the move of of companies and entertainment groups right now responding to the Me Too movement by asserting their pro-woman credentials while continuing to use feminine sexuality to advertise or to entertain. So from the outside, to me, it looks clear hypocrisy on that you're trying to assert your your morality and your valuing of women on the one hand while you continue to use women for your business purposes. But that but that it's clear to me from the outside, that's part of the problem. The hypocrisy of someone else can be so glaringly obvious while my depraved mind excels in the mental gymnastics necessary to justify my own behavior. I see it in them. I don't see it in me. And part of that justification, um, me justifying my own sin, involves me urging others to the same practice. Sin loves company. If I get you to do it, it justifies me. If I get society to agree with it, then it's it justifies we're justified together. So while our depraved heart urges us to sin, our depraved mind justifies that sin. Paul has made his charge against pagan man. Mankind has acted wickedly by turning away from God and has compounded that wickedness by suppressing truth about God, truth that is evident in the creation. So God has expressed his wrath against sin in the present by giving mankind over to his own wishes. We want to turn from God, God allows it. The effect, which is also its punishment, is a perversion of human desire and a darkening of the human mind. This is the indictment against pagan man. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.